How shall a young man cleanse his way? By taking heed thereto, according to thy word. Thy word have I hid in my heart, that I might not sin against thee. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet, and a light unto my path. Jesus prayed to the Father, sanctify them in truth. Thy word is truth. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we open God's word this evening, we need to make sure we're in fellowship, so we'll have a few moments of silent prayer to give you the opportunity to make sure you're in Make sure you're in fellowship. There we go with those glitches again. (sighs) Demons live in the technology. So we'll have to rebound. Use uh, 1 John 1, 9 if necessary, and then I will open prayer. Let's pray. Father, again, we thank you for all that you've done for us, all you've provided for us, for your magnificent plan of salvation, which began in eternity past and worked its way out down through the corridors of time and human history as you prepared through history, prepared the human race for the coming of our Savior so that he came forth, born of a woman in the fullness of times. And now during this church age, you are working out your purposes in even uh, greater detail in order to bring things to a culmination at the end times. All of this is related to the work of our Lord Jesus Christ on the cross, His resurrection, ascension, and present session in heaven. And all of this impacts how we think about our day-to-day life, our day-to-day living, our purpose living today in light of eternity. Now, Father, as we look at Your Word this evening, at this opening section in Hebrews and all the tremendous and fantastic truths that are here, We pray that we might be able to concentrate, focus, keep our attention on the matter at hand, and that God the Holy Spirit would just make these things clear to us and their impact in our own thinking, that we may continue to advance and grow as believers in the Lord Jesus Christ and glorify you. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. I don't know when the last time was that some of you had a really detailed or an opportunity to get involved in a detailed, ongoing conversation with either an unbeliever or a brand new believer that just didn't have any frame of reference, any doctrine, any real understanding of Christianity at all. But it always sort of brings you back to a very basic understanding of where most people are living and what their understanding of the Word is and what their basic questions are. And I've had a tremendous opportunity the last couple of weeks to spend a lot of time, actually, uh, engaged in witnessing to a friend of mine who is fairly intelligent, uh, asks a lot of questions, and wants a lot of answers. And we've, had, we've got the privilege of spending some time uh, exploring those answers. And usually you don't have that. I don't know about you, but in a lot of situations where I have opportunities to witness It's a very short situation. You just have a few minutes or maybe an hour to go over the gospel, and then you know it's just in the Lord's hands how how you know one person plants, another person waters, but God gives the increase. So it's always interesting as a pastor because we get into all of our 
little groups where we talk to people who have a frame of reference. We have a similar vocabulary. We know what we're talking about, and we can really uh, maximize our efforts when we're talking about the Word because we have this frame of reference. But then as soon as you start getting into a discussion with somebody who, who doesn't have that, it makes you realize what a treasure we have in that. But it also helps you realize what the issues are in life and what the issues are that are faced by, at least for me as a pastor, the issues that are faced by most people when they're trying to witness to someone at work or someone in their family. And you always come up to the same basic kinds of issues that are the challenge that's presented because of the attacks of paganism on the Word of God in our generation. And those assaults, especially today, focus or zero in on two main things, I think. One is the claims of Jesus Christ as to who He is as undiminished deity. And secondly, the foundation for everything, which is simply the authority of the Word of God. And I think that the two arenas where we're going to see most a large part of the battle taking place right now is in this arena of canonicity and the authority of Scripture because of the things that are going to come out with that movie based on the book, The Da Vinci Code, as well as on the deity of Christ and his claims to be God. Now, this is nothing new. If you've been around... Uh, modern culture for any length of time and had any uh, experience in the kind of bullying that goes on in academic classrooms or what takes place on, in a more subtle ways perhaps in some of the television shows that allegedly are seeking the truth behind religion or Christianity, then you know that these are the same assault points. And they have been basically for the last 150 to 200 years. And there was a major shift that took place approximately 200 years ago that laid the foundation for this. And it was interesting because uh, in the course of the conversations the last few days, I was asked the question, well, why is it that having heard this very logical and very historical, rational presentation of what the Bible teaches and salvation and who Jesus is, why is it that I've never heard this before? Why is it that this isn't what you run into in churches? What, what happened? Where did this go to? Is this just some sort of underground uh, stream that's run along down through uh, the centuries? Or, or, or where do you find this? I thought about that a minute, and what I realized is that the experience, the facade of Christianity that most people experience and run into is far removed from what you and I experience in our frame of reference every every day and every week in listening to tapes, whether they're listening to me or listening to some of the other doctrinal pastors, reading the material that's come out of, of uh, our heritage, Dallas Seminary and, and others. And this is a far information that is not readily available to the average man on the street. I mean, it's available in one sense, but he doesn't know where to get it, how to get it, where it is. He never gets exposed to it. And so to them, it's like, I've never heard this before. And the reason goes back to what happened in Western European history in the late 1700s, in the late 18th century. And it was a, a revolution of thought called the, often called in academic circles, the Copernican Revolution of 
thought. Now, you know when, who Copernicus was. He was the Polish astronomer who discovered that the earth was not at the center of the universe, that the uh, sun was at the center of the solar system, but that the earth and the, even our solar system wasn't at the center of the universe. So it caused people to have to go through the shift in their thinking so that man and the earth wasn't at the center of everything anymore with everything revolving around the earth. And so in astronomical terms or physical terms, there was this shift in the way we perceived the universe. In the realm of philosophy and in the realm of thought, the same kind of thing happened with the writings of a German philosopher by the name of Immanuel Kant. And what Kant basically said, to to bring it down to a pretty lay level, is that you don't see things as they are. In other words, I don't see this black Bible. I don't see that. I just... I just pers- just have an, a pre- an understanding of my perceptions. I don't ever see anything as it is. Therefore, in his very abstruse philosophical ponderings developed in his books, Critique of Pure Reason, Critique of uh, Religion, various other books that he wrote, he shifted the whole concept of knowledge. And up until that point, even though there were arguments between the rationalists and the empiricists and the and mystics, the, everybody, no matter who you were in Western civilization, believed there, there existed objective knowledge. They may argue about where it, what it was and what it consisted of, but everybody believed you could know something as it is in reality. They all believed that. After Kant, nobody believed it. At least none of the intellectuals believed it. They didn't believe you could know something as it is. You could only know it as you encountered it in your experience, as you perceived it in your experience. The end result of that was it destroyed objective knowledge. That we couldn't know God because God exists in another level. Kant called it the realm of the noumenal. We exist in the realm of the phenomenal. And you can't get into the realm of the noumenal. It's like uh, living in a two-story house. Francis Schaeffer used that upper story, lower story illustration. And it's like living in a two-story house. And what happened up until the time that, that Kant lived is your realm of universals. Let me use the overhead here. Your realm of universals or absolutes operated upstairs. Downstairs you have the details, the particulars. So we have the upper story here is universals and absolutes, and that's what what gives meaning to the details of life down here. This is where God exists. This is where man exists downstairs. What happened with Immanuel Kant is the intellectual baggage needed to get to walk up the stairs, so to speak, to get to that upper level so you could understand universals. By the way, let's also indicate this is objective knowledge up here. This is subjective down here, downstairs. What Kant said was, well, I mean, before Kant, you had, you had, everybody was proposing some sort of intellectual method to get from the downstairs to the upstairs so that you could know for sure universal objective truth. But Kant came along and he wiped out the staircase. 
That means you can't know what's up here anymore. You can't know things that are objective and true. You can't know universal principles. You can't know absolutes. You can only guess at them from an empirical base, from a pragmatic base. But you can't know it for sure. Therefore, you can't have any level of certainty that God exists because all we have, all we're left with is our experiences or our impressions of something we might call God. Well, that penetrated the academic thought of Western Europe. It penetrated into the universities and it penetrated into the seminaries and it filtered down and it basically destroyed all supernatural knowledge because if we can't get into that upper story where God is, God can't get down below either. He can't communicate to man. So if God can't communicate to man at this presuppositional level, then we, the Bible is no longer God's revelation to man. It's nothing more than man, a record of human experiences of God. And now the Bible has been basically eviscerated of its supernatural God-ordained nature. It's just another religious book. And you destroy miracles, you destroy the supernatural. And this kind of thinking just permeated all of the major denominations in the 19th century. And this is why revelation is so important. Why we, I go over this and over this and over this is because what the Bible presents is that you, we, there is a personal, rational, orderly God who exists and who has communicated objectively to man in such a way that man can know, understand, and comprehend what this God has revealed, because the God who reveals is a God who created man and knows how to communicate so that the creature he created can understand it. See, God's the one who built the receptor, that, that receiving instrument in our soul, And because he designed that, he knows how to communicate on a wavelength that man can receive. Now, the theory of pagans is that it's just too obscure, too difficult, we can't really know it. But that's just their pagan rationalization, suppressing the truth in unrighteousness, Romans uh, 1.18. So, as... You go through 19th century history, you realize that, that all, as all the denominations are penetrated and permeated by this liberal thought, it eventually comes to the apex of your major battles known as the uh, fundamentalist modernist controversy at the end of the 19th century and into the 20s and early 30s of the, uh, of the 20th century. The result is that if you go to a many non-Southern Baptist churches, let me just put it that way, some Southern Baptist churches, but most non-Southern Baptist churches. Or if you go to, if you go to Methodist churches, Episcopal churches, Presbyterian churches, that have bought into this, all you're going to get is a lot of do-goodism because that's all you're left with. You're, you're left with ritual without reality. You're left with a lot of morality without a foundation, and you're left with everybody doing their various dog and pony shows, and that's going to differ from one crowd to the other depending upon their socioeconomic level. 
in the deterioration that occurred as a result of the infection of 19th century liberalism, you have a vacuum of truth, and into that vacuum, they just sucked up every kind of experience that's known to man. So all you're left with is experience as a basis for any kind of relationship with God, rather than absolute truth, rather than objective truth, rather than propositional revelation. As I talked about the doctrine of revelation as we started this series in Hebrews, I talked about how God has given truth in propositions. These are statements. A proposition is a technical term out of logic, meaning a, a declarative sentence. Excuse me, a declarative sentence that is verifiable or falsifiable. A question is not a proposition. A clause is not a proposition. A proposition states something about reality. And so Scripture is propositional truth. Therefore, it fits into a certain pattern of, of interpretation. We interpret it according to a historical grammatical, uh, historical grammatical system of interpretation. We believe in literal uh, historical means or methods of interpreting a text and going through the going through the scripture. It's not magic. It's not mystical. You don't just open your Bible and let your finger fall on some verse and then read it and wait for the Holy Spirit to sort of impact you with its meaning and then that's what what God is using to speak to you. But you see, once you destroy that possibility of knowing truth objectively, then the only way you can get meaning is from the creature rather than the creator. All meaning is going to come is meaning comes from this level, not this level, not the upper level. Now this has all kinds of ramifications, and if you don't, if you understand this, it helps you to understand what's happening in our world today. We grouse about the fact that there's judicial activism, and that the courts don't seem to be able to properly interpret the Constitution in terms of the intent of the framers of the Constitution. And we have people and politicians who say that the Constitution is a living document. In other words, that it's reinterpreted for every generation. Well, all of that comes out of this basic scenario. Because once you get rid of this upper story and, and render it unknowable, then meaning is derived from the particulars, from each individual, from human beings, from each, each society, so that you have one level of truth that exists over here for somebody in some uh, aboriginal tribe somewhere out in the bush. You have another type of truth that exists for some uh, Islamic fundamentalist. You have another level of truth that exists for some... Uh, a Buddhist monk. You have another level of truth that exists for your uh, Western European secular skeptic, and you have some other kind of truth that uh, these crazy born agains. You know that's the term they're using for us now is born agains. And so you have this other kind of truth. Well, since there's nothing up here with a capital T to to be used to evaluate each of these different truth claims, then they must all be treated as being equally valid. And so since every culture has its truth claims, every culture has value. And so this produces something called 
multiculturalism. And so you can't ever make any kind of critical evaluation about some other culture because that's the height of arrogance to think you know something that is some overarching principle that everybody is supposed to be uh, subordinate to. And so when somebody comes along as a Bible-believing Christian and claims to have absolute truth by which they can evaluate everything, they become everybody's enemy. And this is why we're everybody's enemy. But the bottom line is that this whole system of thought that came out of the 19th century destroyed most churches. And so most of the things, most of the things that are seen today that go by the name of Christianity are nothing more than various dog and pony shows. You start off with your lower SES people and they're hitting the sawdust trail and they're uh, snake handlers and they're drinking poison. Saw a special on this the other night on television and and it's just the most bizarre thing you ever see taking place in the in the hills of Arkansas or northern Mississippi or up in uh, Appalachia and West Virginia to the other extreme where you have the high church, wealthy, uh, expensive cathedrals and all of the trappings and robes and everything that are associated with a high church religious ritual experience. But whether it's the low church form or the high church form, it's just another form of, of dog and pony show that has is basically eviscerated itself or or cut itself off completely from learning truth and from knowing the Word because there's no longer a sense, even among a lot of evangelicals who ought to know better, there's no longer a sense that there's real objective truth and the purpose of the Christian life is to learn to think consistently with that objective body of truth that has been revealed to us. And this is why people get wrapped around the axle about things such as, oh, they want to go to church and they want it to be relevant. And my response for the last 30 years has always been the reason that you come to church and want something to be want the teaching to be relevant to you is because you don't want to be relevant to God. Now think about that for a while. The reason most people go to church and want the Bible to be made relevant to them is because they don't want to be relevant to God. In other words, the problem is they want God to conform to their personal experience basis rather than letting God dictate what the agenda is and what the priorities are supposed to be and then conform their life to that standard. So the problem is not that the Bible isn't relevant to modern man, but that modern man isn't relevant to the Bible. And we have to bring people back in line. And the more our culture drifts into, into this morass of subjective mysticism, the more difficult it is because at the very core of mysticism is a, is a virulent and a destructive anti-rationalism, an, an irrationalism, an attack on logic that is, that, that just wants to do away with any kind of of uh, exegetical, propositional, doctrinal instruction. And you come to a book like Hebrews, and my gosh, it's no wonder it's not taught and not taught well today. It's because you have to think a lot to understand what's going on in Hebrews, and the writer of Hebrews is bringing together a tremendous amount of information out of the Old Testament. 
And so we start off in Hebrews 1.1, and the writer says, After God spoke, and there's a focus in the first verse on Old Testament revelation, After God spoke in a variety of fragments and various forms, in time past to the fathers, that is the Jewish, uh, Old Testament Jewish saints, in time past to the fathers by means of the prophets. This is a summation of revelation in the Old Testament, special revelation in the Old Testament. And we went through an analysis of revelation, and I went through the doctrine of revelation, and I said that there are two categories of revelation that theologians talk about and that the Bible talks about. One is general revelation, and the other is special revelation. And both general revelation and special revelation say something about man, and they say something about God, and they say something about nature. But general revelation has to be interpreted by special revelation. General revelation must be interpreted by special revelation. General revelation is only good to the extent that it, 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 it testifies to the existence and the power of God to the degree that man is no longer without excuse if he rejects God. In other words, man can't say, I just didn't know you existed. Because general revelation testifies to the power of God. Romans 1.20 But man often in unrighteousness suppresses that. So general revelation is the idea that that, uh, man on his own can interpret nature to a certain degree. Adam, even as a a unfallen creature, is placed in the garden and God tells him to name all the creatures and that he can uh, begin to learn all about the creation around, learn all about the trees. But Adam, even as unfallen can't survive in the creation apart from special revelation. Even though he's not fallen, even without a sin nature, the creature has to have special revelation in order to properly understand general revelation and his environment so that God comes along and tells him that he can eat from all the trees in the garden except for the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Adam could have never learned that through rationalism, empiricism, any level of observation. He could have contemplated his navel till, till he died a thousand years later, and he never would have come up with the fact that that one tree would cause instant spiritual death. He had to have special revelation. God had to speak to him. And so what we have in the Scripture is this realization that in order for life to have any meaning and value, we have to gain the critical information from God speaking to His creation. And if you don't, if you wipe that out at the, at the, at the beginning, and you presuppose at the very beginning that God can't speak, you're left in a morass of meaninglessness and despair and, and depression, and this is why you end up with the, the despair and depression in existentialism and in postmodernism, is because it's, it always ends up in hopelessness. So the writer of Hebrews begins talking about objective, verifiable, propositional revelation. Not only did God speak in the Old Testament, but in the New Testament, He has in these last days, that is the church age, spoken to us by means of His Son. The final and ultimate revelation is given through His Son. And we saw that that word 
as it's given in the original Greek, was with, lacked the article. When it lacks the article, it's emphasizing the quality of his sonship, the quality of his essence, the quality of his person. And so by leaving the article out, the writer in the original language is emphasizing the unique superiority of the son. And then after that, there are seven statements made in the second part of verse 2, verse 3, and into verse 4. Seven statements made that support the superiority of the Son. Last time, we saw in, at the end of verse, excuse me, at the end of verse 2, the first thing that is said is that He has appointed the Son heir of all things. And this is a statement that looks forward to the end. Only Christians, only biblical Christianity produces a linear view of history. We look down the corridor of time to the end. We look to the fact that there will be resolution. That it's not just this endless cycle of events that you get in either Eastern pantheism or in Greek thought. Uh, life just doesn't exist and then end as you get in, in Egyptian religious thought. Uh, where you just sort of bounce into the afterlife. There is a direction to this. There is a future to this. And so you live today in light of the future. And so wherever Christianity has gone and impacted a culture, one of the byproducts of this has been in economics because Christians realize there's a future. And so they will save today in order to have resources for the future. And so economically it's produced this as one of its results, saving today to build for the future. And so you have uh, uh, Max Weber in his book on uh, uh, the Protestant uh, work ethic and the development of capitalism did an analysis which had a certain amount of benefit, that what that, a certain amount of truth in it, that when you come out of the uh, Protestant Reformation, the impact on the thinking among the Puritans in the 17th and 18th century is that it, it builds this work ethic and so there's an accumulation of capital and it is that accumulation of capital that eventually funds the industrial revolution that begins towards the end of the 18th century. And all of this has to do with a linear view of history, living today in light of the future, living today in light of, of eternity. So the first thing said about the Son focuses on His end purpose. He will be the heir of all things. And then the second thing said about the Son takes us back to the beginning as a Creator, that He is the one to whom all things are headed so that all things will be His inheritance, His possession. And then... It takes us back to the beginning that He is the one through whom God made the ages. And we looked at this last time, and I want to put the chart up one more time for those of you who uh, weren't here last time. This chart is up on the Internet. The age of the Gentiles, then the age of Israel. These are further subdivided into dispensations. The word dispensation comes from the Greek word uh, a koinomia, which has to do with a period of administration. It focuses on the administration more than the time aspect. Uh, other words focus on the time aspect. But God's administration is based on certain uh, protocols that God lays out in those uh, periods of time. 
And those are out, outlined in the covenants. And so we understand the covenants as legal documents. So God establishes the first dispensation with the creation covenant in Genesis 1. Man has a responsibility to fulfill that covenant, multiply, fill the earth. He fails to do so. He disobeys God at the test of the, he eats the fruit and the result is spiritual death. Then you have the second dispensation of conscience based on the Adamic covenant, the third dispensation of human government based on the Noahic covenant, and then there's a shift to Israel. God is no longer going to work through the entire human race, but now through a specific called out group that are the biological descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And so you have the dispensation of the patriarchs from Abraham to the Exodus. And that is based, first of all, on the Abrahamic covenant. And then there's a shift that takes place with the first and only conditional covenant established at Mount Sinai, the Mosaic Law. And that each of these covenants gets violated. Each of these, each test and each dispensation results in failure. And this just shows that God is, God is demonstrating in human history that man, no matter what the conditions are, no matter what the parameters are, man, because of sin, is going to fail. As long as a creature tries to act independently of the Creator, there will always be failure. And this is what God is demonstrating in the angelic conflict, is that the creature is going to act independently of the Creator, and even when it's in an innocuous type of situation, like eating a piece of fruit, the unintended consequences are horrendous. And even though Adam disobeyed God by eating a piece of fruit, and there's nothing immoral or unethical about eating a piece of fruit unless it's not yours, uh, you stole it from the neighbor next door, yet that act is the root cause of all war, suffering, disease, famine, crime, heartache, all of that because of one act where the creature acts independently of the Creator. Then we have the Messianic Age. And last time I pointed out that this is, that you've had some debate over this in the history of dispensational thought. And some have identified this as a separate and distinct dispensation and others have have, uh, have not done that because the Mosaic Law obviously continued up until the cross. For Romans chapter uh, 16 says that uh, Christ is the end of the law and the cross ended the law. Well, that's true. And sometimes you have certain overlaps in some of these dispensations. For example, the Noahic Covenant was still the basic means of operation that God used over the Gentiles. But there was clearly a shift that took place with the Abrahamic covenant that was directed to a, a, a minority group, uh, Abraham and his descendants. So there is a basis for arguing that there is a separate dispensation here beginning with the life of Christ. James Hall Brooks, that's a name I couldn't come up with last week. James Hall Brooks was a pastor of a Presbyterian church in St. Louis, Missouri, in the 1880s, and a young alcoholic lawyer who came to a knowledge of the gospel by the name of Cyrus Ingerson Schofield, who was a former uh, Civil War uh, soldier and decorated Civil War soldier, came under his influence, and James Hall Brooks taught dispensationalism to Schofield. Schofield, of course, 
was a man that God used to make it very popular through his Schofield Reference Bible and also through one of his protégés by the name of Lewis Berry Chafer. Lewis Berry Chafer started off as a as a musical evangelist. He and his wife, his wife sang, he uh, played the trumpet and uh, also sang. And Lewis Berry Chafer started his ministry as an evangelist. And uh, one day, Schofield told young Chafer, he said, you know, you might make a passable preacher if you ever had anything to say. And so that encouraged young Chafer to that he needed to study the Word and not to spend as much time on his music. You see, that's the problem most churches today. They want to emphasize the entertainment, and they don't want to humble themselves uh, and learn the Word. Well, Schof- I mean, uh, Chafer learned his lesson well, but neither Schofield nor his protege Chafer uh, followed Brooks in isolating the Messianic age as a separate dispensation. It was Schofield who really set up this parameter for understanding dispensationalism that it involves a responsibility in each age outlined by the covenant, a failure on the part of mankind or the Jewish race or whoever the specific group was, and a consequent divine judgment that you find this pattern. So I went back a few years ago and I said, well, do we have this same pattern? Can we substantiate a distinction in the revelation, a distinct responsibility, a distinct failure, and a distinct judgment in relationship to the first advent? You can't just come along and say, well, you know, Jesus was kind of unique and one of a kind, and we ought to make that a dispensation. You've got to have criteria. You've got to be able to say, okay, every dispensation is demarcated or isolated by means of new revelation indicating something's changed. There's got to be a distinct responsibility. It's got to be a distinct failure and distinct judgment. Well, in terms of responsibility, you do have a new revelation. Jesus Christ is the ultimate revelation of God. That's what verse 3 in Hebrews 1 talks about. He is the apagasma in the Greek. The flashing force or the radiance of His essence. He is the flashing force of God. He is, and that fits the, the main theme here. Remember, the main verse, the main verb is God spoke. In these last days, by means of His Son. That's the controlling idea. Now, what happens is when you get into a, an analysis of, of uh, Hebrews 1.3, talking about Jesus being the radiance of His glory, we want to spend all of our time talking about how this relates to the essence of God. The essence of Christ is full deity, as is the essence of God. And that's true, and that's right, and that's clearly embedded. But but we have to get back to the controlling idea in the passage, which is Hebrew, which goes back to the verb. Remember, grammar has to control things. God spoke to us by His Son, so that the Son is that which reveals or comes out from the Father to reveal the Father. That's the same emphasis that we're going to get in the third verse. So there is this new revelation that takes place in Christ that surpasses all previous revelation. He is the Logos of God. No man, John says in John 1, no man has seen the Father at any time 
the only begotten, he has explained him. So if you're going to talk about new revelation, you've got new revelation. Second thing that you have is, is a new responsibility because in the, in the previous dispensations, the focal point of the message of salvation was to believe that the Father would send a Messiah in the future. Well, now the Messiah is knocking on your door. He's right there in front of you. Now, he's not in front of the Jew who's living in Athens or a Jew who's living in Cairo or a Jew that's living in, in Babylon or Rome. But he's right there in Jerusalem, and so you have an immediate message not to accept the promise of a future provision of a Messiah, but to accept this one, Jesus of Nazareth, who's standing right in front of you as the Messiah. So it's a different responsibility. There's also a failure there. They reject the Messiah. This is what comes to a head there in Matthew chapter 12, when Jesus... uh, uh, talks about the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, which is a time, history, sensitive uh, rejection of the Messianic claims of Messiah. Only the Jews could do it in that generation. You can't do it today. Uh, you may have been taught different. You may have heard somebody say, well, blasphemy of the Holy Spirit is to, to, to reject the, uh, uh, Christ as your Savior. That's not what's, what's going on in, in Matthew chapter 12 is that the Jews are saying, you are performing these signs of the Messiah. And and, and the signs that that they're talking about are signs that the rabbis had always understood would be the unique signs indicating the Messiah. And they, as the representative leadership body of Israel, say, this isn't you, you're doing this by the devil. And they had their judgment. And their judgment came in 70 A.D., and so that ends that, I don't end that age, but that was the end, that was the judgment for their rejection of the Messiah. The Messianic age ends at the cross, and you have a new age that enters in the church age. Church age, you have new revelation in terms of the New Testament. It's the application of the new covenant, and the test, of course, is to trust in Jesus Christ as your Savior. Church age ends with the rapture of the church. And then there will be a seven-year period known as the time of Jacob's trouble, a time of wrath, a time of distress. And this is Daniel's 70th week. In other words, from Daniel 9, it's the last seven-year period in the age of Israel. That concludes with the return of Jesus Christ to the earth. And he establishes his kingdom. This ends with the great white throne Judgment. So that is our dispensation chart showing the ages in relationship to the dispensations. Now all of this has set us up in the first couple of verses for what is said in the third verse. There is a slight grammatical uh, shift that takes place here. A slight grammatical shift, and the focus goes to the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. So in verse 2 we read that he has, God has, in these last days spoken to us by his Son, whom he has appointed heir of all things, through whom he also 
made the world. So the first thing we see is that He's the heir of all things. The second thing we see is that He is the one who made history. He is the one who made history. Now this is a direct claim of deity for the Lord Jesus Christ. You see, one of the things that came out of that lengthy introduction I gave you this evening, talking about the historical shift after Kant the, uh, in the 19th century, is that if you can't get up into the upper story because those intellectual stairs have been torn down, whatever exists in the upper story can't get down into the lower story. Let's put this back up here. This is pretty abstract. If, if we can't go from the details of our lives and intellectually get to the universals and have an understanding of objectives and the existence of God and absolute truth with a capital T, neither can anything that exists up here get downstairs. The, the stairs are wiped out. Therefore, if God exists, He can't communicate to man. If God exists, He can't become man. If God exists, the incarnation's impossible. See, at, at this core level of understanding the nature of knowledge that has infected and destroyed Western civilization, there's a rejection of the idea, that, uh, the very core idea of the Scripture is that God can communicate to man either propositionally or personally in terms of an incarnation. And so if God cannot become man, then you can't have an incarnation. You can't have a virgin birth. This is why two of the five fundamentals of the faith relate to the virgin birth and the deity of Jesus Christ. Now, the, what are the five fundamentals of the faith? Back in about 19, 1915, 1917, I forget the, the person who wrote them now, but they, they, they wrote, the, fund, the, the conservatives wrote a, a series of books called The Fundamentals of the Faith. And this was the, the battleground points between the liberals and the conservatives. And if you held to these five fundamentals of the faith, you were a fundamentalist. That's the historical meaning of the term. Now, that term has been attacked and assaulted and changed over the last hundred years. But originally, being a fundamentalist was a really good thing. It meant that you believed in the infallibility of Scripture. The infallibility of Scripture, that God has objectively revealed Himself to man. The second thing, you believe that Jesus Christ, you believe in the virgin birth. Third, you believe in the deity of Christ. Fourth, you believe in the substitutionary atonement of Christ, that Jesus Christ died for your sins in your place. And fifth, you believe that Jesus Christ is going to literally physically return to the earth at some uh, time in the future. Now, I think everybody here holds to those five fundamentals. That makes you, a, in a classic sense, that makes you a fundamentalist. And this was where the battle lines were drawn at the beginning of the, of the 20th century, this fight over the fundamentals. But notice, of, those, of the fundamentals, of the five fundamentals, two of them specifically relate to this issue of God becoming man. The virgin birth... And in some formulations of the fundamentals, it's not just the virgin birth, it's the whole category of miracles. But it's the virgin birth and the deity of Christ. 
two of the five. This is the, the, the battle point, is that Jesus Christ is fully God, that God becomes man. And this is laid out very clearly in verse 3. Romans 11.36, before I go into verse 3, Romans 11.36 reiterates and substantiates this whole doctrine of the deity of Christ. The claim that came out of the 19th century that you get reiterated in the Da Vinci Code and these modern attacks is that the church, that Jesus never claimed to be God. That was just something the church invented 100 or 200 years later. The legends grew and they assigned deity to Jesus. And what happened in, in, in the 19th century was they assigned late dates to all the books in the Bible. They weren't written in the 50s and 60s and 70s of the first century. They were written 150, 160, 170 in the, in the second century. If they're late dated that far, then you don't have any eyewitness accounts, and so they're, they're the product of legend and not the product of eyewitnesses. Interesting thing, back in the early 60s, a man by the name of John A.T. Robinson, who is a notorious liberal from, uh, from England, wrote a book on dating the New Testament, and he argued for earlier dates for everything in the New Testament, earlier than any conservative Christian held to, <laughs> because that's where the evidence was leading him. Now, I think he was wrong in the, some of the dates that he assigned, but he, at least he located everything in the, in the middle of the first century so that it was written by eyewitness accounts. And so we, we get back to the, what the Scripture says, and the Scriptures clearly teach, and they're written in a time when, when eyewitnesses, those who knew Jesus, were still alive. And at the end of, of Romans 11.36, Paul says in, in this great doxological statement that I often quote, "...for of Him and through Him and to Him are all things, to whom be glory forever." Amen. The hymn in context is God, not Christ, according to uh, verses 32 to 34 in that context. And that's the same kind of statement that you have at the end of verse 2, that he made the world for of him and through him and to him are all things. So now you have Christ is the one who made the worlds. In Romans 11:36, of him for the Father, through him the Father, and to him the Father are all things. We see that if you put these two verses together, that the early church clearly was assigning to Jesus Christ all the attributes of deity. That he's not just another man. As we wrap up this evening, one of the classic strategies that have been developed and arguments developed in apologetics, which I use a lot, and I find very effective when you're talking to, to folks that are not believers, and you say, well, who do you think Jesus Christ was? Who was he? You think he was a good man? Well, let's see. Jesus told people that he was the only way to heaven. That if you didn't believe in him and him alone, then you couldn't get to heaven. Now, either that's a true statement or it's a false statement. If it's a true statement, then he is the only way to heaven. If it's a false statement, then Jesus Christ has not only deceived millions and millions and millions of people down through the 2,000 years of church history, but he has also been the source of numerous wars fought over religion based upon that claim that he was the unique way to heaven. 
This isn't a good man. This is a very evil, deceitful person. So you can't just say, Jesus was a good man. I won't let anybody get away with that. That is totally contrary to the evidence. Jesus is either who he claims to be, or he is a deceiver on the worst order. He is worse than any Hitler, Stalin, or Saddam Hussein. Because if he's not telling the truth, he has deceived millions of people and caused the death of millions of people unnecessarily. So you only have an option. He can't be a good man. He's either who he claims to be, the only way to God, or he's a liar. Now, if he's a liar, you're left with two options. Either he is a cognizant liar, self-conscious liar, in which case he is intentionally deceiving people, which makes him thoroughly evil, or he is self-deceived, which makes him some form of psychotic, mentally deranged individual. So you're left with three lines of reasoning, three options. He's either Lord, liar, or lunatic. That's how Josh McDowell expresses it in his uh, book, Evidence That Demands a Verdict. You're not left with the option of a good man. It's clear from the Scripture that you can't take the evidence of the Bible as having any value whatsoever and conclude with anything other than Jesus Christ is the eternal second person of the Trinity. He claimed to be God. He said, I and the Father are one in John 10.31. He clearly claimed to be God. He claimed to do the works of God. And the Bible, whether you're talking about the Gospels, whether you're talking about Acts, whether you're talking about Pauline epistles, the Bible consistently presents Jesus Christ as full, undiminished deity. And that's where we'll start next time in Hebrews 1, verse 3, with our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to study your word this evening, to realize the importance of the deity of Christ, that this isn't some tangential doctrine, neither is it just something that reinforces our understanding of our own spiritual life, but it lays the very foundation and and groundwork for everything that has been done and accomplished in history, starting with the creation in the Old Testament, for he is the one who made the ages. He is the originator and the designer of history, and he is the goal of history, and that he is the one that has done all of this for us. He has provided such a remarkable salvation for us. And all of these wonderful things that we learn about the Lord Jesus Christ are designed to, to increase our, our occupation with him, that we might have a, uh, be motivated in our own spiritual life and spiritual growth because we understand that we are headed in the same direction in terms of that future inheritance and possession in the millennial kingdom. Father, we pray that you would challenge us with the things we studied this evening. Help us to grasp these things, understand their impact, that they may give us uh, greater tools for not only living our own spiritual life, but also for witnessing to others and and communicating uh, your wonderful plan for us. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.